FASWA is a podcast about Bigfoot. It's recorded for the skeptics, the believers, the knowers, and those who just have a casual interest in the subject. For more information, visit saswhat.com. By 1956, there had been several such reported sightings, which had been reported in small local newspapers. Mr. John Green, publisher of a newspaper at Harrison Hot Springs, British Columbia, began investigating some of these sightings. Here is John Green to report on a sighting he investigated in 1957. When I first came here in about 1957, it was still pretty well open. But all this has, has grown up since then. So, uh, what happened at that time was that uh, Mrs. George Chapman, who lived in a house down by the river behind me here, uh, she was in the house and her children were outside. One of them came in and told her that there was a cow coming out of the woods. So she looked out and she saw this man-like thing, but uh, about eight feet tall and completely covered with hair like a bear. And uh, she knew it to be a Sasquatch. Uh, this was, you know, quite a well-known thing to the Indian people. And she was frightened, so she took the children, ran down to the river, and then through the graveyard, which is right behind me here, and uh, came out just about here onto the track and then uh, ran on down to Ruby Creek. Now, uh, she'd really only had one quick look at the thing, so... Uh, it wouldn't be that convincing a story, except that a lot of people immediately went back there and saw these enormous tracks. Uh, Mr. Tifting, of course, was one of them. And uh, This is Sasswat, a show what about Bigfoot. Like I'm one of your hosts. My name is Seth Breedlove. Well, Joined, as always, by my pal, Mark Matsky. Greetings from beautiful Northeast and Ohio. Was a bottle of dried fish or smoke um, and, and for those... Unaware of the the Bigfoot news, uh, John Green passed away uh, last week. Well, actually, at the end of May is right. what is what I heard. So yep. the, May twenty eighth, and the family kind of kept it quiet at which, first. Who can blame them? Yeah. Um, so so John Green obviously is kind of a pioneer in in Bigfootery. We've talked about him on the show. A lot, actually. I think he's probably one of the people we reference the most. I mean, we've done episodes about him already. Um, and this is going to be another one. So we're going to do a show kind of about Green and uh, his research and then just kind of talk about him and uh, our perception of him in general. And I've said on the show before, uh, Green is one of the guys who... Um, how do you say this without sounding like a jackass? Uh <laughs> Try it. Mo I guess, like, I modeled myself after him in terms of approach. Um, and, and you know, like, he came into this very skeptical, like I was, and he left pretty much, a, uh, you know, he, he pretty much put a lot of um, a lot of stock in the fact that there actually was a Sasquatch. Um, so he, I mean, in terms of his documenting of sightings and all that kind of stuff, I've always kind of tr tried to have that same approach. There's someone once told me there's, there's two types of people that are into big footing. <clears throat> and I've told you before, I think there's actually quite a few more than that, but hmm. he told me there were two types of people that were into big footing. Keep, keep in mind, this is a BFRO investigator too, but there's the hunters and then there's the, the document people, the people that are documenting the hunt. And he put green in the documenting the hunt camp. Um, over the hunting, you know, like actually trying to find a Bigfoot. Mm -hmm. I don't know how much I agree with that, considering the fact that Green had a database of thousands of reports, and he, cro you know, he was able to cross-reference those. I mean, like, the guy spent hours and hours just taking sighting reports and kind of, you know, p putting them in a database to keep, you know, uh, I guess, well, I guess, I mean, I guess that is documenting, but he also had, you know, he was into track casts and he did spend a lot of time out in the Pacific Northwest involved in those famous early hunts for Bigfoot that we love so much. Um, but he kind of a pure, I mean, it's hard for me to say anyone's pure in this, but as it, it, from my perception of Green was always that he was 
in it for the right motives. Um, and you know, he made money off of it, but it was, it was, I think secondary to his, I mean, he obviously had Mm -hmm. a huge passion for the subject. So, um, yeah, I think one of the most compelling things about green, you know, by his own reckoning is the fact that he backed into Bigfoot as an interest. He didn't, this wasn't a hunt or a, a quest of his starting out at all. In fact, the first thing he ever published about Bigfoot was sort of a, um, you know, a wink and nudge type article where he's just kind of having fun with the subject, but he wasn't taking it at all seriously until a little bit later on. And uh, to your other point that you made about him, you know, financial from a financial standpoint, he didn't need to hunt Bigfoot to make money. He was doing just fine on his own. Right. And the more you dig into the man, I mean, it, you find out about his personal history and his family and his wife's family, and he did not need one dollar of Sasquatch money, which yeah. I think says a lot to your point that he, his ability to remain objective mm-hmm. and just give you his um, unfiltered thoughts, I think we don't have many of those voices anymore, I don't think. Not like like Green being in a position to just say, "Here's what I think," well, eloquently. I mean, I can't think of anyone better other than maybe people who actually got to know him. But I can't think of anyone better uh, than you to kind of tell us who John Green was. So, for like listeners who are unaware of who John Green was, just like quickly sum up John Green. Yeah. Well, John Green, uh, of course, is of Canadian descent. He uh, was very well educated and had a wide range of interests uh, beyond just Bigfoot, obviously. But um, he would, actually, journalism was his thing, and he spent some time in New York City as a reporter, uh, came back to Vancouver for a while, and then finally settled in the Harrison's um, Hot Springs, Agassiz area, and uh, started his own paper and did very well with that. And his wife, I think, came from a... Uh, lumber baron family or something of that nature. And uh, so they had some pretty um, urbane interests. You know, uh, they were uh, no nonsense, I guess, is the word that comes to mind. And and some have used the word conservative to sort of describe his overall personality. And that can mean many things, of course. But I think certainly – from a Bigfoot standpoint, he's old school in a number of his viewpoints, and uh, we'll you know we'll get to some of that later on, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know, sort of his ultimate conclusion about Bigfoot as a species. But uh, so anyway, he it was really you know Bigfoot was on his radar only in sort of a somewhat of an ironic way, I think, and publishing some of those early articles, and then it was really a run-in with uh, Rene de Hinden and getting interested in the Bluff Creek tracks that um, piqued his interest. And and again, by his own reckoning, I think the thing that he says that tipped him over the edge into a full-blown interest in the subject was seeing the tracks in Northern California. And uh, for for himself, with his own eyes, and being able to sort of... um, do some uh, rudimentary testing, like you know, having people jump off a stump to see how deep their impression would be next to some of these tracks. And it was essentially the, the tracks themselves that sold green on this phenomena, that there was something to it. And, of course, over time, then the, the preponderance of eyewitness reports. Well, I, I thought he put, you know, that that was kind of the the basis for his interest in all this, but I read an interview today and I'll probably reference this throughout very long interview. Um, I found on bigfootencounters.com, which I still refer to probably more than anything else. I'm trying to find his quote right now, but he actually talks about track casts as being, you know, it it kind of reminded me of, uh, the Grover Krantz, um, approach to it, which is like, this is, there's, there's something's making these tracks. This is, mm-hmm. this is where he puts the, you know, the most stock in the subject, which like you, I mean, I mean, I really thought it would have been more based around the, uh, amount of sighting reports, but from reading this, he really, he, he was perplexed by how you could see 
a Bigfoot track, a cast, and and not want to know what made it. Um, especially if you write off hoaxes on every single track cast. I can't find the quote right now, which is unfortunate, but this is an extremely long interview. It's actually taken from the Bigfoot Information Project uh, website, but it's... I really wish I could find this quote. I'm looking right now. I'll, I'm sure I can cut this out. This is part where I'm just sitting here <laughs> looking. Uh, I'll I'll try to keep going through here. A, a really great interview with him, though, very in-depth and, and gives a lot of thoughts on various topics in the subject. You know, like even things like um, the need to preserve land for Bigfoot. No, he didn't think that was a necessity. Right. Uh, that they were doing just fine on their own and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, his thoughts on Greg Long's book uh, oh. on the Patterson-Gimlin. If we have time, I would like to read his review of that. Really? That's, yeah. Because it's just a, it's a great way of capsulizing you know, everything that John Green was, including his ability to write exceptionally well. And in this case, he just, you know... It, in the, the Canadian people that I know, mm-hmm. they're able to destroy you in the nicest possible way. And that's what he does in this review. It's classic. So he, Let me get to one thing. You you kind of touched on it, but he was – this this was a super well-rounded guy. Yes. Um, and and in, in the Bigfoot world, you see a lot of people whose lives revolve solely around Bigfoot. Um, and that was not John Green. And I – was hoping I would get some sort of insight on that. And in this interview, um, I did. I've got to give, before I get to it, though, I've got to give, um, he was interviewed by Gary Matthews. Uh, so I did want to mention that because this is a great interview. It's from all the way back in 2004, July 23rd, 2004, um, on the Bigfoot Information Project website. But I found it through Bigfoot Encounters. It's linked on there. So, so this guy asks him, um, let me see. People who are interested in Sasquatch, like myself, and the people who are going to be reading this, they invest a lot of their time, some even invest a lot of their money, searching for and researching Bigfoot. How do you separate your private life from this, or do you separate it? Is it intertwined? He said, I never got into the condition that Renee was in, for instance. I always had a lot of other things going on. I was very fortunate that June was with me when we first saw Footprints. Um he talks a little bit about, you know, like, oh, great, now there's sirens just roaring down my road at this at this exact moment. Um, but he just talks about how separating the two and having, you know, being well-rounded is kind of a, a necessity, and you don't want to get to that point that Rene DeHinden was at. Mm-hmm. Something that I don't know that I've mentioned on the show, but some a certain person very highly placed within the um, BFRO and uh, local Bigfoot groups has actually compared me to Rene DeHinden recently uh, in a negative light. Are you serious? Telling me I'm too much like Rene DeHinden throwing away friendships. And you'll, you'll be able to guess who would say such a thing. Oh, but I thought it was the just being out just in the, the trailer by yourself part. <laughs> the accent? <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> yeah, no, I've recently been, uh, yeah, compared to Oh, wow. Rene okay. DeHinden, so... Hmm. Um, anyway, so, so yeah, but I thought it was cool. This is a guy who was extremely well-rounded. He, he was on city council. He Mm -hmm. was involved with the chamber of commerce, you know, obviously ran the newspaper for a while. Um, he He was also a sailor too, like a competitive sailor in his youth. And Mm -hmm. yeah, so also all sorts of stuff. If you read, if you can find his actual obituary, I found his obit on Thomas Steenberg. Um, on his website and and speaking just as a side Thomas Steenberg was closely connected with John Green especially in his later later years and Steenberg I'm a huge fan of mm-hmm. Steenberg I don't know if you've I don't I haven't done much research I don't know much about the man I just love his uh approach I read his, <laughs> the reason this is I'm saying this is like I was I read the obit and then I kind of started <clears throat> uh perusing his website or his blog, and he writes very frankly about things that typically Bigfooters don't touch. Hmm. Like um, what, for instance? Like finding Bigfoot and um, okay. what he thinks a moneymaker. And, 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 and not, this isn't like, you know, this isn't some guy casting stones. This is Thomas Steenberg's pretty legit. Um, mm-hmm. um, he just gives his opinion on why 
he thinks, you know, the show Finding Bigfoot is nonsensical, why it has a negative impact on the field, which is kind of runs counter to things you and I have said, although I've gone further away from what I originally said, not 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 to the point where I think it's hampering anything at this mm. point. As with the people running around in this field, you're not right. going to do much damage. I think it's probably run its course, too, at this point. Yeah, well, he just talks There's... about... Um, well, I mean, he he flat out calls them out for lying on the episode because the ep- episode he's referencing is an episode where Moneymaker and Cliff went into um, that kind of that reservation that that reservation where where kind of everything started for John Green. That's why this article actually popped up. I searched John Green. That was one of the articles that popped up. And apparently, on the episode, Cliff and Moneymaker said that they were the first people to actually go into this reservation and research and investigate. And he was deeply kind of offended by this when John Mm. Green had kind of started out by going there in the first place. So um, anyway, Steenberg kind of, kind of a cool guy, kind of a, it seems like he later in life, he might've been almost like a protege to, to John Green. Yes. And he was, he was privy to a lot of uh, Green's personal notes Mm -hmm. and uh, letters, things of that nature. So it's a really cool kind of relationship that they were able to strike up. Mm-hmm. And I think also uh, if, if any of the listeners are interested in a really good definitive and relatively short biography of John Green, they should look up uh, Lauren Coleman's blog, uh, CryptoZooNews.com, mm-hmm. because he has you know, sort of a, a, a really good concise take on – Green and um, not just the biographical facts, but also sort of getting into the overall impact that Green had on the field, which really it, it, you can't calculate. But um, but that's that's the level of influence that we're talking about with this gentleman. I'm still looking for this quote. On okay, podcasts. I'm never going to find it. Um, Go talk about the making of Bigfoot, though, because that's something uh, when people think of the Patterson Gimlin film, I don't know that you typically think of John Green right Right. away. You think of, you know, obviously Bob Gimlin, Roger Patterson, uh, Titmus. I think of John Byrne because there's photos. I've seen photos of Byrne, you know, in that area, but I don't even know that Byrne was any more closely connected than Green or DeHinden were. Yeah, the thing with with Green and uh, and Bluff Creek that sometimes people may have a tendency to forget is that he was there at Bluff Creek before the footage was taken, and afterwards he was there as well. He had uh, a friend of his named Jim McLaren, and Jim, I believe, is about six foot six, and so they did uh, as close to a recreation of the PG film as they possibly could. And that's really still, to this day, um, you know, one of the most, as far as analysis goes, uh, one of the best analytical studies of the film because of how recently, you know, the the relatively short time between when the footage was taken and when they did their study because, you know, over time that, that whole area has just shifted in the way that it looks and it doesn't even look the same. So Green was there and and did uh, as best of an analysis as he possibly could and uh, but with this with greg long's book do you want to hear this review yeah i mean green wrote because it's amazing to and greg long wrote the the book's called the making of bigfoot yes and it's it's a <laughs> um a kind of a skeptical look at the the famed patterson gimlin film and and pretty much comes down on the side of it was a it was a fraud and a fake but mm-hmm. i mean it's pretty at this point i've seen skeptics shoot down this book as being at least partially fraudulent mm-hmm. or uh well i don't want to say that that's that's a little hard but um well, I don't let, know. Let, let John Green okay, talk okay yeah about let, it. let's just do that John Green's Amazon <laughs> review Oh, whoa. Make, Hold on. This was, John Green went on Amazon to post yes. this. Oh, I In love 2004. it. 2004. I love it. 2004. Prometheus Books sent a review copy of Greg Long's The Making of Bigfoot to my postal box. I hadn't asked for it, and it was not addressed to me. 
But having taken the liberty of reading it and even highlighting some of it, I guess I'm obligated to review it. The author makes it clear that he began with two firm convictions that the creature in Roger Patterson's film of Bigfoot had to be a man in a suit, and that if he could demonstrate that Roger Patterson was a bad person, that would prove he had hoaxed the film. Burdened with those limitations, he did a very, very thorough investigation, but the limitations were fatal. In the valley west of Yakima, where Patterson lived, he found a lot of people to tell him what he wanted to hear, even a man who had been claiming for years that he wore the suit in the film, but he didn't consider it necessary to familiarize himself with that other valley in California where the film was shot. As a result, he was blind to the fact that Bob Hieronymus, the man who claimed to have driven there to act the part in the film, obviously had never been there either. Confusion over which towns or where in that part of California might be explained by the passing of more than 30 years, but not about four, maybe five miles up the Bluff Creek Road from the highway. It would have been more than 20 miles of twisting dirt road and not easy miles, well over an hour's drive and not a forgettable one. Much of the book is a transcript of what people had to say about Roger Patterson mostly, but by no means entirely unfavorable things. And Long makes clear that he thought that he would have been enough, it would have been enough to disprove the film even if he had never interviewed the man who claimed to have worn the suit or the man who claimed to have made it. He did interview those men, however, and made a further fatal mistake by putting pictures in the book. Bob Hieronymus is shown to be a typical human with legs too long and arms too short to match the creature in the film, and the type of suit the owner of Morris Costumes claims he sold Patterson is a typical gorilla's costume, not in the least like what the movie shows. Long does have witnesses who say that Hieronymus had a long history of claiming to have been the man in the suit, and that they once saw such a suit in his car, but they make no connection to Patterson. There's only Hieronymus's word on that. And Long has fitted blinders on himself so closely that it can see nothing wrong with his two key witnesses describing, with many specific details, two totally different suits, a three-piece suit made of raw horsehide and a six-piece suit made of cloth. Philip Morris's story was apparently a last-minute addition after the book was finished. It would have been to Long's credit that he chose to add material so damaging to the case he was trying to make, except that he apparently thought he was making the case stronger. Long obviously worked hard on his book, and I learned some things from it, so perhaps I should feel sorry for him for being so easily taken in. It is his own fault, however. Had he spent less time admiring of his own opinions and not been so contemptuous of the work of those who investigated the film in the beginning and those that have studied it since, he could easily have avoided making such a fool of himself. Nice. Uh, you got to respect his honesty. Uh, I just like the way these old, older guys talked. You know, like... I, I like John Byrne pers personally. I, ha I haven't had the opportunity to meet him, but I emailed back and forth with him when I was first getting into all this, and he was always very giving of information and mm. and speaking with me. And um, but in this interview, John Green comes right out and literally calls him a fraud. I mean, just and, and anyone who knows anything about those early days of uh, Bigfoot research or investigation. Uh, whatever you want to call it, they, none of these guys got along. And it seemed like everyone was at each other's throats, um, which kind of, I, just to be honest, I kind of like it. Uh, I kind of like it that way. They're, they're emotionally invested. Uh, they're they're into their thing. I mean, I'm sure some of it was ego-driven, but, you know, little, little uh, playful rivalry never... Hurt anyway. That's it's certainly more interesting from an outsider perspective. Yeah, to have that sort of competition going on. You know what worries me when everyone gets along? This is this is, <laughs> this is my this is my uh, uh, my more I guess my skeptical side or my my bitter side or something. When when everyone's getting along, it means to me that there's someone someone's got something going. Like there's some sort of money being made. Everyone has something to gain. If everyone's mm. getting along, so that's always that always concerns me. So when I see like a, <laughs> especially when it comes to like Bigfoot, it makes sense that people don't get along. You know, that's kind sure. of that's kind of why I like the groups that I do or, or talk to the people I do. I, I typically get along with the people that are kind of on the fringes of the subject who aren't deeply involved in the community, who are doing their own thing. I mean, in a way, that's kind of us, like just figuring things out for ourselves. Um, the people who are involved in these huge groups that go out 
you know, and, and I'm not talking about people who do camp outs and all that stuff. I don't have a problem with that stuff. I don't have a problem with any of it, really. I'm just making observations. I just, I, I'm concerned. I grow concerned of people who all profess to get along like, like, uh, <laughs> ants. And, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, well, I think the, the example of John Green is one of being an independent thinker. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was, he was, um, by reputation, very open to people reporting things to him and very giving of information and he had these stories in the early days of people like Lauren Coleman and others exchanging letters with him. You know, this is all, of course, pre-internet, uh, pre-fax machine. It's just letters going back and forth in the mail and these personal connections being made. But always with Green, you get a sense that nobody is going to tell him how to think about this phenomena. He's right. going to do it himself. And be disciplined enough to tell you why he's arrived at his conclusion, mm-hmm. which he does in a marvelous way in the last chapter of Apes Among Us. I mean, you may not, a person can read that, and I'm sure many today would almost be aghast at what he suggests. Um, but at the very least, you have to admit that he's thought this through. He knows why he's reached the conclusions that he has. Uh-uh. And I don't think. People aren't necessarily that coherent in their thinking about Bigfoot, which is one of the big appeals uh, about him, is that he, he can demonstrate to you why he thinks about the subject the way he does. And I guess that's the, that's the author in him. That's the newspaper man in him. It, it, like you said, even, even in the early days of the Internet, Green was involved in a Yahoo group. And I think it was Eric Altman, maybe, that was talking to us about that. And I know Sean Forker even has, has talked about it a little bit. But in the early days of the Internet, these guys, that's how they communicated. It was like through a Yahoo through a Yahoo group. Um, mm-hmm. I can't even remember what that was called back then when they were just, it was almost like a, a mini forum, like a subreddit or something, you know, but, but via Yahoo. Um, and Green would participate in that. Um, but you read so many stories about Green corresponding with people via mail. And they're sending each other letters on this topic. And things just had to have been much more personal. Probably almost impossible for people to be um, weirdly passive-aggressive through, through like, Facebook. and Or, or just aggressive through, through, sure. through Facebook groups and stuff like that. Um, well, and you think about how people communicate on social media now today. It's like, I mean, sometimes when people get into a thread, they can write long chunks of stuff, but... By and large, you know, it's short, back and forth, you know, uh, just replies. But if you got a letter from John Green, I mean, it was a letter. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a beginning, an introduction, there was a body, <laughs> there was a crafted ending. Have I mean, you, that, did you ever try to correspond with him? No, hmm. no. I, you know, the thing that's strange is that as a young boy, as a young man, Green's writing was almost too much for me. You know, I, it it was. I didn't get into it until later on. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. So the idea of trying to interact with him just never crossed my mind until it was too late. You know, or, or even the idea that these people were contactable didn't cross my mind. That didn't come until the internet era. I guess. Here's a, here's a question. I was reading something today. It might have been that Steenberg article actually about finding Bigfoot, but. He, someone mentioned something. I ended up on a rabbit trail, as I am wont to do uh, on Google, and um, so so the Sasquatch, which is what brought Green kind of into all this. The Sasquatch legends J.W. Burns was writing about. Um, they were not necessarily giant apes. The the those Sasquatch legends seem to be more like giant hairy. Uh, I don't actually. I don't even know if it talks about Harry, but it's just mo- mountain men, like 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 huge natives um, mm-hmm. that lived in the mountains, like uh, a different tribe. Yeah, and in mm-hmm. fact, like it it talks about them having you know like basically summer parties in this in this hit on mm-hmm. this one particular mountain, you know, and like like these kind of things. And and I saw somewhere that Lauren Coleman mentioned Green having an opinion on this. Um. And and Coleman was talking about it in connection with that book 
that he co-wrote about giants. I'm oh, not true sh- giants. True yes. giants. Mm-hmm. Do you know anything about that? What did did, did do you know? Did did Green put stock in the in almost like the two types of Sasquatch thing? Because because that's basically what Coleman was saying was at the very least he helped research. Um, or further research of things other than just giant apes, like almost like he he was mm-hmm. also helping and, and might have had his own thoughts on there right. being like a giant unseen tribe. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, um, let me read you a little bit from Coleman's blog because okay. he addresses that directly. Okay, it says um, this is probably what I read, and and my yeah. brain, my brain being the way it is, it just immediately. I was probably reading it and forgetting it as I was reading it. So <laughs> we're just polishing it up here. <laughs> yeah. So he says uh, John Green did not make harsh judgment in his gathering of the data and took responsibility for the fact that more regions of North America than the Pacific Northwest area were producing reports. He surveyed eastern and southern hairy hominid reports as well. He published them early on, and through doing so served as a model for others to not ignore these cases. He also asked his correspondents, as he did Mark Hall and Lauren Coleman, who's writing this, in the 1960s, to research native tales of Bigfoot. We did and published one of the first articles on North American indigenous folklore of hairy hominids, thanks to Green. Even the relatively recent book that I wrote and co-authored with Mark Hall, True Giants, can trace its origin to John Green's finding that creatures larger than Bigfoot were being reported. What Roger Patterson had called the quote-unquote giant hairy ape, which was different than Bigfoot, Green had also noted. Green had written of reports from the 50s and 60s that told of extra-large hairy men with giant, almost two-feet-long foot tracks. This is not to blame Green for any radical theories that Hall and Coleman decided to write about, but Green's outside-the-box thinking certainly stimulated a good deal of lateral research. Yeah. I just find, I guess I'm... I'm to the point now where I'm just I'm fascinated to learn what people think about everything. And and it isn't even just writing things off anymore. It's like what, you know, what it why did why do people put stock in things like this? Like this unseen hidden tribe, you know, of of people which you know, as as a Christian, as someone who's done a lot of like Old Testament reading and all that, there is supposedly there's this, you know, possibly this still there could potentially be this remaining tribe, you know, almost... Um, so basically, it's like the Nephilim in a way, but I don't... My problem with the Nephilim, and we should talk about this at some point, my problem with the Nephilim is is a lot of that stuff is based on a, on a non-canon piece of the Bible, right? Right. And... You know what's crazy is that somebody asked me about the Book of Enoch just today. Yes, in a different setting. See, I was really taken aback by that because it's not usually that's something you know, that comes up well, in every conversation. It's a weird book. I read it a long time ago because I was I was there, there was a brief period of time where I was super into some of the more fringe theories on stuff. And um the Book of Enoch's really bizarre because apparently it was written over it wasn't like it was written at one period of time. This is written over Hundreds, if not thousands of years, if I'm not mistaken, um, to where they're not even sure that the back half of the book was written with any kind of eye for history or anything. Like it's, it becomes almost like Transformers or something. There's a guy, what's the guy's name? It's, it's like Megatron, um, and he's running around. I, I mean, like it's bizarre, Enoch is. Uh, yeah. So I've always been very leery of putting a ton of stock in the book of Enoch, but the Bible itself does talk about giants in the land and mm-hmm. it talks about uh there is the that verse that talks about there were giants in uh Correct. wait how's it there go were giants in the land is the phrase yeah. right but there's the one where it talks about how they were in the earth in those days and then also that after that is that enoch that verse isn't enoch that's like uh that's genesis that's yeah. genesis yeah yeah that's first enoch genesis three <laughs> <laughs> no so, so as a Christian, like I put, I put some stock in that stuff, and I'm curious about it as as anyone is. So, like hearing just just hearing John Green's name attached to this stuff, like the 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 giant Sasquatch tribe of natives or whatever, I'm curious to know what he thought of all that. You know, like did he did he think there was anything to it? You know, Coleman talks about these twenty foot long footprints that were found that seemed or twenty foot long. <laughs> Belonging it's to, uh, uh, yeah, 
possibly a giant lizard uh, <laughs> breathing fire over Canada. No, uh, 20-inch long footprints that were found, you know, and these, these stories that reference creatures that would have had to be like 18, 16 to 18 feet tall. And I mean, I'm not saying I believe in any of it. I mean, I don't know. Personally, I'm growing more skeptical of all of this. So, but, but I'm curious to know what someone like green who, who researched this as long as you did, what he thought of these things. Yeah, I think, well, I, that would be fascinating to know. Yeah. I, it, it really does seem to me that in his writing, he collects those reports, but you know he he had um, sort of his own his own meter on things. Yeah, because uh, you know, his final his final conclusion at the ends of of Apes Among Us is that this is an animal, and it's not even really that human like, and the only reason that people consider it to be human-like is that it will sometimes have the face that reminds them of a, a human and it walks on two legs. Mm -hmm. But he was in no way convinced that this was some sort of super close cousin of ours. Which, tends, which leads me to believe that he takes a very um, materialistic viewpoint of what Bigfoot is. I mean, he does. I, there's no way around it. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think the fact that he didn't just throw those crazy tales in the trash is what has inspired a, you know, another generation to say, well, let's take a closer look at these. He talks about a couple of things here in this. I just want to reference some of these things because they're so insightful and I don't know that they're anywhere else. So I cannot stop referencing this interview. If you haven't read it again, it's on the Bigfoot information project. Um, are you, Still hearing me? I'm yeah. getting a, a internet connection problem thing. Yeah. Um, okay. We're good. Okay. So this is um, over the years. We've gone over the years through a phase where anything about this was news, to where anyone who was doing something about it was news, to where the only news nowadays is when people claim to have proven it's all a hoax. Um, and then he goes on to say, Oh, I missed one phase. There was a phase there where any scientist who showed an interest was news. We've now re reached the extreme opposite where some of the world's very top people in the relevant fields are very interested and are saying publicly that there should be proper investigation, and this is not news. The only thing that's news is that the whole thing has been proved to be fake, um, which is true, and, and I like – I don't know if we're – if we've kind of moved even beyond there because I think we're in a new phase now where it's – where it's and we're in, honestly we're probably in a transition phase from that because this is back in 2000 so this interview is from 2004 so you got to mm -hmm. think it's pre finding bigfoot um it's it, it's around the time monster quest is probably just kicking off or getting ready to kick off so you're not even to that phase yet so what happens what's the phase where bigfoot becomes a pop culture icon because i mean he's already gone through that phase but even when he was a pop culture figure in like the seventies um, and early eighties, it was different. It was, in my opinion, he was still a mystery. It was like a mysterious figure. And we are now in a phase where Bigfoot is almost like freaking Mickey mouse or bugs bunny. Like he's showing mm -hmm. up, but he's the Jack Link's guy and he's in, you know, he's on finding Bigfoot as a giant joke. And he's on mountain monsters with a bunch of drunk hillbillies chasing him around the woods. And, <laughs> and, <laughs> And uh, it's just it, it is it is funny how we move from one kind of thing to the next. When are we going to get that? Because because it seems to me to to my eyes the golden age of bigfootery was the very beginning, where mm -hmm. where it was green and Dehinden and Titmus and these guys out there, and you had you had Tom Slick funding actual expeditions to go look, you know, and and taking the whole thing very seriously. Yeah, and I would say that it's Green's credibility that pretty much has, you know, ensured that people are still talking about Bigfoot, quite honestly. I mean, I don't know. If you can pin the, the modern Bigfoot sort of cultural phenomenon on any one person, it could almost be Green. Because when you, talk, when you hear him speak in interviews and when you read his work, he just comes across as extremely reasonable 
and very thoughtful and, and certainly not not doing this to uh, you know to sensationalize the topic and into it but now we have i mean now it, it's completely sensationalized with very little substance sure but i mean <laughs> i don't even he talks he talks very frankly about selling his his book let me try to find this quote it's right here at the end he he gets asked about about um the book sales let me see okay so not so that this is the interviewer not by everybody else but a fair number of people loyal to your thoughts and ideas okay um i'm sure there's other people who say oh there goes that bigfoot fellow he writes books about bigfoot wink wink john green says you got that one by the wrong end that sort of thing went on until i wrote a book as soon as you've done something where you've made money from it, everybody understands. <laughs> then the, the, the interviewer says, now you're not that hack on the corner and you're a respected author and businessman. John Green says, yeah, it became obvious when I wrote the book. Suddenly the attitude was noticeably different. I hadn't really realized what the attitude was up until then because nobody was saying anything to my face. Mm. Which I thought, it's interesting because I, I don't know. My, my experience is being someone who makes money off of my movies, which happen to be about Bigfoot, is is that I still get the kind of, you, you know, you make movies about Bigfoot. But I probably mm-hmm. get an equal number of them who, th- who think that's really cool or who are just fascinated by the fact that I make movies. I was introduced to someone, I was at a graduation party on Sunday, and the the kid who was graduate graduating introduced me to his girlfriend as, as the movie maker. And he was just telling her, you know, he makes movies. Actually mm-hmm. felt pretty cool. Yeah, <laughs> sure did. Yeah, this is the first Steel time. Bergian, yeah, anyway. it was the first time someone had directed or in- introduced me as like a filmmaker. I've mm-hmm. never. I mean, other than at like film festivals, I've I've never in my personal life been introduced to someone as like, hey, he's a filmmaker. I was like, oh, maybe am I? <laughs> I thought I was just this. Is, <laughs> That's too late. Yeah. You are. It is, you are now. I guess. But um, I just thought I think it's so cool how he talks so frankly about things like making money on this subject and and like he in this thing he talks about he he talks very frankly about why they broke uh one of his books off into two separate books apparently it was originally going to be one big book and they broke it into two halves instead so they could make more money you could either charge x amount of dollars on the big book or you could charge more for both small copies he just mm-hmm. talks very frankly about that i was like it's yeah. It's 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 kind of a it's kind of nice to have a guy who's just upfront about the fact that hey you know like I was making money at this this was not a not necessarily a living or a career for him mm-hmm. even but he was a businessman you know like and he knew yes. how to make money off of it no doubt and also I think from a writing standpoint he would probably never ever say this because of his um, his background and so forth but. He's a good writer, mm. and it's okay to know that you're good at something, you know. Mm. And I, I think he did know he was, he did a good job. I think he was aware of his own abilities, and so uh, wasn't afraid to say that. You know, I, he is, after all, the person who compiled all these things. Uh, the database is, is massive, by the way. If you look at the database, the database is huge. It's, it's not. BFRO level huge, but you've got to think the BFRO is hundreds of, if not thousands, of investigators. Um, just judging by the amount of BFRO investigators, I know in Ohio it's probably millions of BFRO <laughs> uh, investigators out there. But the John was kind of flying solo, like you're. He's a lone wolf, going around and and you know conducting these interviews and compiling them in this database that then that then you you could cross-reference everything apparently now i don't know if you can do that in the database that you can go download but you can look up like how many 16 inch i almost said 16 foot tracks again these <laughs> is this something subconscious the wonder this, of the world yeah there's like some sort of subconscious message being implanted in my brain to yes. go look for the massive bigfoots um <laughs> but no like you could you could he used the he used the illustration as um you could look up how many 16 inch tracks there were in the database mm-hmm. and things like that i mean that's unbelievable that 
the amount of time and effort that goes into something like that. But mm-hmm. it makes perfect sense if you know who John Green is because he was a, a newspaper man and he was obviously very detail oriented. So yeah, yes. And he passed away at the age of uh, eighty nine, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? I'm not sure. That's thought, a good question. I thought it was eighty nine, but let's say that. Okay. It, it, well, hey, we have letters. And we have letters about this that we should read before we wrap up. Good, yeah. Good call. Okay. Good catch. Um, <laughs> I'm going to let you read them. Okay. Because I'm not sure I even have them in front of me. Yeah. Now, there's one that uh, we have agreed uh, will be read anonymously, mm-hmm. but um, this one is not that. This is from Henry May. And he writes, a memory I thought I would share about meeting John Green in 2011 on the Saturday of the Sasquatch Summit, a tribute to John Green. He told me he did not know what everyone was making a big fuss over him for. And I patted his shoulder and said something to the effect of, because you deserve it for the years of dedication of this subject. He smiled at that. It was so nice to have met him, if only for that one time, but I did also meet members of his family, including his son, Jim. For those who may not know about Jim, if you have John's epic book, Sasquatch the Apes Among Us, there's a photo of the rock pit where Glenn Thomas observed three Bigfoot digging and throwing the rocks out to retrieve ground squirrels. The photo of the pit has Jim standing in it with just his head barely peering over the top of the pit. He was pretty tall as well, like his dad, Henry May. I didn't even... Does Henry listen to this show? Henry's like a internet legend Yes, in the world of Bigfoot. Yes, he is. That's pretty cool. Thanks, That Henry. is cool. That's awesome, too. I Man, I would have loved to have just said thanks mm-hmm. to him in person. That would have been great. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, that uh, Sasquatch Summit that he referenced, that's available on DVD. It has a number of great presentations, including John Green himself talking. I have seen it, actually. Yeah. Is is that yeah. the one, too, where... Um, Hinden gets into it with someone during the middle of a talk or or someone there one of those lectures there's there was an event had green had Krantz, yeah had de Hinden. and during the middle of someone's talk de Hinden gets into it with someone else and it right is yeah that's fan- much earlier on okay. i think it's fantastic this is relatively yeah right <laughs> this was invitation only if okay. i'm not mistaken that explains it <laughs> <laughs> all right the next one is from our our longtime listener kevin bird said, uh, sorry that I never had the chance to meet Mr. Green. I'm sure that he would have been a fascinating person to speak with, and I'll bet he had many incredible stories to tell from his decades of research and field work. He definitely belongs front and center on the Mount Rushmore of cryptozoology researchers, and he will most certainly be missed by many, but not soon forgotten. Thanks for all you did and shared, Mr. Green, and rest in peace. Yep. Ditto. Now, the, the interesting thing that about that letter... Uh, is that it just makes me wonder what, you know, what did end up on the cutting room floor with John Green? You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, what stuff did he say? I can't, uh, I can't go with this story. That would be a great book. Yeah. In and of itself. I mean, he's got, he's got the database, man. It's, you know, I haven't spent much time with it. I have it downloaded here on this computer. Um, and I have not spent much time going through it yet. And I don't know that I'll ever get to. It's 3,000-some reports, if I'm mm-hmm. not mistaken. If I remember right, that that was the number I heard, 3,000. 3, right. And, you know, the, the tragedy of losing Mr. Green, I mean, along with just the personal loss to his loved ones, is that, you know, he would essentially be the key to all that information. Right. And with without him, then there is no extra sort of... Uh, organizing principle to that information mm-hmm. so that's a that is a a loss that a lot of people will feel i'm sure mm-hmm. okay this last letter um probably a great one to to end on here i never met john green but i feel i will always be in his debt i had an encounter in 1980 as a teenager the first thing i managed to come across was apes among us at the local library within a week or two of that incident that book had only been out a couple years at that point Page after page of ordinary people encountering these creatures, letting me know I had plenty of company, it helped me feel much less ungrounded and alone. Apparently, I had simply run across a rare, elusive, and very real creature by chance like many others had as well. Descriptions, behaviors, Bigfoot and witnesses, and stories much like my own experience. 
It really was the perfect thing to find at that time, and I feel very, very lucky to have that as my first source. I think a new witness today would actually be much worse served. Online would be a mountain of paranormal, violent, habituating, and BSing nonsense. I think it would make one feel even more unhinged. It often seems the last 35 years of quote-unquote research by so many has brought us so much less than what he did in the 50s to the 70s. Anyway, I'm writing this because I have to think that my relationship with John Green's work must be typical of thousands of us pre-internet witnesses. Thanks for listening, and congratulations to you on your success with the radio program and your films. Awesome. Um, thanks to the people that wrote in, too. So it's good to know. I mean, definitely, it was everywhere when he passed. You couldn't get online and not learn about it so Mm -hmm. um there was a lot of people who respected and loved that guy so um final thoughts mark oh wait we just got some it's uh it's you you can ignore it i I sent it over but check it out in a minute it's kind of humorous (laughs) okay (laughs) all right i will uh final thoughts i think the one thing that we haven't touched on yet is um kind of his conclusions and um It's very short. I just wanted to read what he says. Mm -hmm. Um, This is the very last passage in the book. In summary, I hope that I have been able to convey adequately the main points of a rather simple message. There is evidence that another erect primate shares this globe with mankind. The evidence may not be conclusive, but it is certainly ample to establish that the matter should be further investigated. In the meantime, the person who finds himself in a position to obtain a specimen should do so in the knowledge that it is important and that such creatures are neither rare nor human. Finally, don't worry about them. They are big, but they are nothing to be afraid of. (laughs) How dare he? (laughs) Uh, All right.